0: I'm Cesar Rubio. This is Masonic Muscle, strengthening your body, mind, and soul. Episode 27. This episode is brought to you by General Contracting because the valley deserves quality. We Freemasons may not be building real stone buildings anymore, but there are men and women who are still actually helping our valley build a better edifice that we can all be proud of. You can reach Ted Parker at 760-275-1943 or... Ted Parker93 at yahoo.com for a free estimate. Give him a call. He's great. Today's guest might surprise you because you might say, What's a woman doing on your podcast? Which is about Freemasonry, exercise, and the mysterious origins of Freemasonry. That's what you guys are asking, right? Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. And all I can say is that Freemasonry has many different aspects. And one of them has been our festive boards toast to special guests and dignitaries, speeches, and specific times of the year that we should be celebrating, like we've talked about, right, Steve? Times like the changing of the seasons, the summer and winter solstices, the spring and autumnal equinoxes. We are now approaching the autumn equinox on September 22nd. This, to us Masons, means that the sun is now passing over the midpoint of the year and heading into the winter. The sun's heat and power are seemingly waning and weakening, and the days are becoming shorter and shorter and darker and darker. The spring marked the time for plowing of the ground, planting of the seeds, and waiting for them to grow over the next three months. One of the most important of these seeds is the grape seed. All summer long, they grew to maturity, and we are now in the harvesting and storing phase of the year. In Freemasonry, one of the symbolic wages of a Mason of a certain degree, is wine. That was our setup for today. And to help us learn a little bit more about wine will be Katie Finn, owner and operator of Desert Wine Shop on Highway 111. Her shop features many different styles from imports all the way down to natural wines. You can join her uh, special wine warriors club. She does special events. She does a column uh, and has a newsletter that she regularly puts out for us to learn more about wines and what she knows about wines you can find her on desert-wine.shop-on-111.myshopify.com instagram at uh, Desert desertwineshop111 and she is also on twitter at desertwineshop katie welcome to the show what do you have for us today
1: Oh, Caesar, Thank you for the introduction. Um, one note, my, my um, website is truly not um, that complicated. It is, <laughs> it is uh, just uh, desertwineshop.com. Okay. The email address you have, it does link you directly to our okay. um, shopping platform, which in case you don't want to leave your house and you want to buy wine online, that's where you go. But otherwise, you can just go to the desertwineshop.com. Today, um, I thought it would be really fun to talk about Zinfandel. And specifically because it is considered the all-American grape. It's the grape that isn't under this name grown anywhere else in the world. And how it got to the United States is a really fascinating story. And I think there's a real love-hate relationship with Zinfandel with some people. I think, you know, you... You've come to know it as this high-octane, full-bodied, high-alcohol, kind of intense manly wine, um, which is another reason I thought it would kind of be uh, Mm -hmm. appropriate for my uh, compatriots today, but also um, it has a history of um, being European and showing a more elegant side, and I thought it would be really fun if I kind of broke down what is Zinfandel, how did it get to the United States? Why do we call it Zinfandel? And why is it so important to our history as a wine culture here in California in the United States? And so, you know, to, to date back before we started recording, we were talking about kind of the oldest origins of wine. Mm-hmm. And this is considered a um, by many scholars, to be the oldest existing grape that is still being produced today. Uh, it originally was found in Caucasus, which would be, you know, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Turkey area uh, today, um, dating back to 6,000 BC. And you know, we were talking a little bit. Were they were they making wine back then? I don't have the answer to that. I don't know. Um, as we know, making wine requires some skills, some know-how, and, and the correct tools for the trade. But we do know that this grape was in existence back then. So, again, the question is, how did a grape go from Caucasus <laughs> to California? I mean, and and it had quite a journey that, that it went on. Um, what, what I find interesting is uh, UC Davis, which is the foremost authority on wine education now in the world. We have kids growing up in Bordeaux, Burgundy, Tuscany. They're coming to the United States for their wine education. I mean, that's profound. And their technology for being able to carbon date and identify varietals is bar none. So they were able to discover that Zinfandel is actually a Croatian grape. And this was a Croatian grape called Sirlenic Kastelanski. Are you writing? There'll be a test later. Are you you writing this down? Okay, Um, I won't make you spell that, Um, (laughs) because there's a lot of uh, consonants in in Croatia, Croatia. Yeah, Yeah. and, um, you know, and and from Croatia, the idea is where it was Sir Lenit Kastelansky, it had a cousin um, that was very similar to it called Plavik Mali. So for years, there was this debate. Mike Gurgich, who lives out here, um, uh, he's of Croatian descent, has obviously Gergich Hills Winery in Napa. He has been a big proponent that Plavic Mali is Zinfandel. So leave it to the geniuses at UC Davis to say, no, that's a, a relative. Cyr Lenit is actually the exact same DNA as Zinfandel. They they share the same DNA, so from there it was said that the Croatian migration into that rhymes Croatian <laughs> migration um, into Italy um, it would have been planted uh, somewhere in southern Italy, Puglia, Campania, where it would have been tended to by monks or uh, religious people, um, and the reason being is. Uh, for a large portion of time, there were several countries and and um, and city states that alcohol was forbidden. It was not allowed to be openly consumed, mm-hmm. except for novitiate or sacramental purposes. This is why, you know, religious orders like Catholicism were so vitally important to keeping viticulture alive because they were the only ones that were really allowed to continue to make wine and produce wine. But it's thought that it ended up going from Sirlenic kastelonski not something that really trickles off the tongue, to being called Primitivo, right? Primitivo is what the Italians call Basically, there's Infidel. It is a much more romantic, much more beautiful name uh, than Sir Lenit no offense to any Croatians that are listening, but um, also because it had kind of a religious connotation to Primitivo, the very basics, the, the primitive, the-, the um, Primordial fru- Fruit of the earth, yeah. sort of, so to speak. Um, so from there, okay, so Primitivo is in Italy. That still has nothing to do with California. Again, we've got lots of wars taking place, we have lots of transgressions happening. It said that at some point Primitivo made its way to Vienna. And I have my, my notes here because I want to um, I want to make sure. So at one point um, during the Habsburg mona- um, monarchy, um, Austria ruled Croatia. And so it's thought that, Primitivo might not have even been what made it to Austria, it might have been the Croatian Sirlenik Kastelansky. and when that Croatian grape made it to Vienna, they called it Zinfandel. So fast forward then to where we are in the 1820s. A gentleman uh, from Long Island by the name of George Gibbs saw that uh, there was a Long Island nursery owner who had brought cuttings from the imperial collection from Vienna, and he was advertising them for sale in his nursery in Long Island, and he was calling them Zinfandel. Mm. Amazing, right? So, something something that would have been called Zinfandel. Leave it to the Americans, and I mean, we've certainly seen Ellis Island and what they did butchering names when people came across. So, Zinfandel uh, came kind of the more vulgar Zinfandel, and that's what we have today. So, I brought a Primitivo. Um, and this is going to come from Salento. This is the southern part of Italy. And I brought a California Old Vine Zinfandel. And I thought it would be really neat to see these two side by side, compare and contrast what the kind of original incarnation of this grape is versus what California is doing with this with this grape today. So in your glass first is the Primitivo. This is the Masso Antico.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm, I'm going to take a sip. <laughs> sure. Mm. now there's a reason why you're sipping on this there is a reason why by the time it made it to the united states why it became so prolific and such an important grape for us and that was when the gold rush hit so zinfandel is a very very hardy grape and it's a very very sturdy vine during the gold rush there were two things that became very hard to come by. One was wood, the other was wire. And those are the two things you really need to trellis a vineyard, right? You've got to put the stakes in the ground and you've got to trellis the wire for the vines to to grow on. Zinfandel didn't need that. That's why when you see a Zinfandel vineyard, most of the time, there are these very gnarly looking little mini trees where they're like, I mean, the the vines themselves are like tree trunks. I mean, they're so thick, but they're all twisted Mm -hmm. and tangled and gnarly. That's what we call a head pruned vine. It doesn't need wire. It doesn't need trellising. It doesn't need stakes to hold it up. It's very competent on its own. And it's also very sturdy to survive uh, climates that perhaps other grapes couldn't survive in. But here's what I here's what I love. So, you know, we had a lot of Italian immigrants that came over during the gold rush, um, seeking, you know, gold in them, their hills. Um, and they brought with them a lot of their Italian cuttings, right? So Aglianico, Barbera, uh, San Giovese, and Primitivo. And back then, they would have been planted just very haphazardly on whatever tiny little bit of land they had or, or they were leasing. Now, we know that they were not Overly wealthy people who came over, and the only land they really could afford were sandy-based soils. You can't grow a whole lot in sand, right? You're not, you're not, you know, thriving on your agriculture when you've got a sandy piece of land. They still planted their field blends of their uh, cuttings from from homeland, but it turned out that the joke was on us, and that by the 1890s there was this little louse, this bug that had now made its way ravaged through Europe, eating the root stocks and the roots of these vines from Italy to France, all over. And it was called phylloxera. It didn't take very long before phylloxera made its way to California. But there was one thing that could stop phylloxera, and that was sandy soil. It couldn't survive. Mm -hmm. It it couldn't move through, through sandy soils. So we now have these Italian immigrants who had these uh, vineyards planted in this very inexpensive land that most people thought wasn't worth anything. And yet these were the vines that survived the phylloxera plague because it couldn't move there. So this comes the significance of an old vine, right? Why we tout old vines as being so important. One, like I said, it's the historic significance of this. I mean, we have vines in this state that date back pre-civil war that have never been replanted. I mean, think about that. I mean, that is for, for a a state and a country who is considered relatively young in the wine world, right? I mean, really Napa had its wine Renaissance in the 1970s. Think about our vineyards being, you know, uh, going back to the 1860s. That, that's profound to me. And it's because, um, that it, it was this fortuitous thing that these people planted these vineyards in these areas where this louse couldn't couldn't destroy them so you know we owe a lot of our heritage to that but the other thing is old vines are, are incredibly important with sinfandel because the older the vine the less fruit it produces right it's getting old it doesn't have the same vigor that it did in its youth that's important because instead of uh, one, one vine producing lots of fruit where all the energy in that vine is going to multiple clusters, you have all the energy in this vine going to precious few clusters, meaning the fruit that it is producing is that much more concentrated, that much more structured and intensely flavored because all that energy is only being diverted to a few, not the many. And so the fruit that comes off of old vines is typically what's going to produce these Zinfandels that we know and love as being these intense, masculine, extracted, you know, big wines. And I feel like, you know, there's some confusion about that because there's no law about what constitutes an old vine. You know, you could technically say, oh, I'm a vineyard owner and I have you know, uh, I've got a vine here and it's five years old and I have a vine here and it's three years old. So technically that five-year-old vine is an old vine. It's older than the three-year-old. So, yeah. but honestly, in, in the wine world, there is more integrity uh, than that. And typically these old vines are, you know, 50, 70, hundred years old. I mean, it's really, really quite astounding.
0: So that's an old vine. Sixty years or more is considered an old vine. I
1: mean, technically, as much as right. I, as much as I don't like to admit it, uh, forty years old is considered an old vine. But we're not going to talk about that. So yes, let's say seventy. Seventy is an old vine, and I'll go with that.
0: I got something for you, and only because I like going down every year to uh, San Juan Capistrano, and they have a mission, and so they were they they're constantly doing uh, they're digging up and they're fortifying because they're they they need they want to preserve it. So one day they were they were digging around, uh, I believe, the south side of the of the monastery and they they hit upon something. And, and as they dug it all out, they found that they that this was their wine vat. They were making wine. So they they began to do their research and wonder, OK, how did we not know it was here? So what the story the story goes is that obviously in, in Catholicism, you need wine for the mass. So they were beginning to run out of wine for the mass and they had to wait from Spain to get their next shipment of, of wine. And they didn't want to do that anymore because it happened too much. So they, what they did was they requested uh, back to Spain, back to the monks over there. Can you send us a grapevine and we will plant it over here and we'll grow our own grapes. And now we have control of the, the grapes and the wine and, and what have you. Now we can have mass regularly without being interrupted or or substitute so they are saying that that was the origin of the grape being brought to california was these monks requesting a grapevine i wouldn't know what grapevine it was but it's sounding like it's what you're describing here do is that what they use for the mass i don't even do you guys do you know what they use for the mass what kind of wine it's just whatever wine or grape so it's oh it's just grape juice (laughs) No, and say it isn't so. <laughs> say it isn't <laughs> so.
1: Right it yeah, Right back then it wasn't. So, you know, yeah. when, it to, when it comes to the, the Spanish um, missionaries um, that came over, they would have brought their own Spanish cuttings, um, which would have been entirely different than what we're drinking today. So you would have been looking at Garnacha, Tempranillo, um, you know, things like that, that we, we don't see a lot of Tempranillo mm. here, but we do see a lot of Grenache. Um, but like anything, you know, you, you're taking what, uh, what was, you know, kind of grapes from the motherland, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. You know, we found that Grenache worked very well here in California, but we have several different microclimates here as well. You know, everywhere from Santa Barbara, Central Coast, Lodi, Sonoma, Napa, Mendocino, all of these areas um, are not going to be growing the same things. And so what works in one area isn't guaranteed to work in another and so that's why we saw, um, you know, if, if the missionaries or the Franciscan monks would have had, you know, certain grapes, sometimes it, it would have taken off. And other times, mm. you know, they would have had to try something else here.
0: Now, I wanted to read a little something. It, it's from a book. It, it's not about wine, but it kind of is because they, you know, they uh, you have to cultivate the ground. And thank you for, yeah, thank, thank you for that. And so I, I, because it goes hand in hand, what we're talking about, and you, you mentioned the Catholicism. So I'm going to, I'm going to mention a few things here. It says, and this is coming straight from the Bible, because Masons, we do use the, the uh, Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testament. And it says here that in Genesis 2.15, you know, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. And then God entrusted the world to humanity to care for it, to bring it under cultivation for the good of humanity and to give glory to God, its creator. Man is a cultural animal fashioning the earth as part of his likeness to God. Beer is an important, and you can substitute beer and wine, is an important image for our broader cultural vocation of shaping the earth for the sustenance and joyful flourishing of the human community. And the origins of the word culture, I thought this was interesting, I don't know if you've ever dug into it, because the ground is being cultivated, but so is our minds right like right now, we're cultivating our mind we're learning something new you are implanting knowledge of this divine grape that we are partaking uh, in so here is the origins of the word culture and it's the beauty is that it's one paragraph. The world in its natural state contains a myriad of latent possibilities, and it belongs to human intelligence to draw them out. Bread does not grow out of the earth, but wheat does. Wine does not drip forth from the vine. Culture comes from the Latin word for cultivation. Colare, interestingly, also the Latin word for worship. Cult, culture, and agriculture all derive from colares participle cultus meaning to tend to or care for something culture entails the shaping of things in the world impressing a human stamp upon them producing works of culture clearly reminds us that the rest of creation is subordinate to us and is meant for us when it comes to agriculture like we're talking about right now the tending of fields or or the vine we see how planting seeds tending plants and harvesting crops give us a glimpse of humanity's role in cultivating God's creation in order to sustain and uphold us. Pretty profound. Of course, this is written by a Catholic monk, right? He was talking about beer, but he also mentions wine a lot. And a lot of people don't uh, think about how many times wine or or the vine or the, the grape is mentioned in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Maybe I should leave it for you guys to go and do your homework. How do you how, how did you get involved with all of this uh, Katie I mean what how did uh, what, what what happened how did you tell us
1: uh, in university i discovered drinking was a lot more fun than studying <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay um,
1: no but it, it, in all seriousness i um i i was uh, going to university and uh needed to to get a, a restaurant job where I could earn a, a significant amount of money because I was living in Orange County, and that's not a, not a cheap uh, thing to do. And so I applied at a restaurant, a steakhouse, where their claim to fame was they have a hundred wines by the glass. And I think at the time when I started, I knew there was a difference between white and red. And that probably was the extent of my knowledge. I come from an Irish family. Um, so, you know, wine is was not part of our my growing up, you know, whiskey and beer that's a different story but wine not so much um in fact my dad likes to joke that you know he uh before I came along and was talking to him about wine his idea of a good bottle of wine is if it had a nice glug to it right so (laughs) not overly sophisticated with wine but I I needed this job and when I was applying um As much of a neophyte as I was, I promised that I would study the wine list, I would study my wines, I would learn and I would earn that job, and I would would make them proud that they hired me, and I did. And um, I was going to university at the time for political science, and what I discovered was a lot of what was happening um, in the world politically, um, uh, geographically, and environmentally were things that were happening in the wine world and things that I was studying about Uh, the Franco um, White Terror and, you know, um, what was happening in Spain, well, that had a direct impact on the wine world and and what was happening there because he was a teetotaler, Um, there was no wine allowed to be or no alcohol allowed to be consumed, so a lot of the Spanish vineyards were ripped out and replanted to other more prosperous grains and things, Um, and, and so that had a huge impact on what was happening in Spain. But, you know, I enjoyed learning about the wine just a little bit more than I enjoyed putting my nose in a book about, you know, Franco, but it, it wasn't just that it was, you know, um, if you think about, you know, you go farther back in Spanish history when the Moors um, were, were ruling the country, they were Muslims, there's no drinky drinky, Um, and so That took a huge toll on the country and you know France was no exception Italy was no exception. Um, You know, Austria, you look at things that were happening to these countries, um, everything had an impact on agriculture and viticulture as well. And so, as I was learning, the difference for me was, I could touch this. I could physically be a part of the wine. Um, it, it, it was something that, uh, when I wrapped my head around it, um, it blew my mind open. And the fact that I could taste, uh, a wine made from the same grape from two different areas, and they were so wildly different based on where they grew up, um, boy, that, that had a, a pretty profound impact. And so from then I thought, Oh, what the hell i think i can make a, a living drinking um and my father did not believe me i said no i just genuinely i think i i think i got this okay and when my um he told my my grandfather um that i was becoming a sommelier you know my grandfather she's becoming a what you know? <laughs> finally my father said you know got it through to him and he said, you know, Lord, to be Jesus, she's getting paid to drink. I was immediately the favorite. I was the smartest person in the entire family. I had it all figured out. Um, and I remember when I passed my first exam, my dad took me to, uh, the Rimrock up in Banff as a celebratory dinner. They have a beautiful, uh, restaurant up there. And we did, I think the seven course degustation menu. And he told the sommelier on staff there that I had just passed my test and, every oh 10 minutes or so the psalm would come by with a glass of wine put it in front of me and walk away yeah. and i'd sit there and i'd Chast go through my man. deduction and he'd come back a few minutes later what and want him and want to yeah. you know yeah. know and i was i was nailing him now keep in mind i had just passed the exam and like anything it's still fresh in my head could i do that today i don't even know <laughs> but i remember my dad just sitting there his eyes huge like whoa you can do this, you know, and I think that was the moment for him when he realized, oh, yeah, this is bona fide. This isn't just, you know, my daughter just wants to get paid to drink. <laughs> so that was that was really how, how it got started for me.
0: So go. why don't we get into how you're you came to the valley now and you decided to have you had always had a, a store or when did you start your shop and when did you start thinking about I want I can do this. I can set my own shop and I can I can be just as good as, you know, anybody.
1: Yeah, I um So I, I uh, grew up out here and, um, you know, had a lot of connections and friends and went away to university, like I said, um, I left that steakhouse and got hired by Roy's Hawaiian Fusion and worked there in Newport um, until the opportunity came up that they needed a sommelier in Hawaii. Hmm. Let me, let me wrap my head around that for just a few minutes. I can go, you're going to pay for me to move to Maui and be a Psalm in Kahana. Yes, my bags can be packed. I'll be on that plane 8am tomorrow. So I, I worked there for a while until living in Hawaii was, I'd had enough of that. Um, I came back to Palm Desert, um, came back to the valley, and I got hired in wine distribution. So I became a sales rep for a wonderful company called Epic Wines. And um, really, through that, I met all these restaurateurs, other sommeliers, other wine lovers. I got connected with a res- uh, business in La Quinta that was doing wine dinners frequently. And that gave me a platform to get up and start talking about wine again. And I've always loved it. I've loved kind of the education part of it that, you know, I'm, I'm sharing stories with people that maybe they didn't know. And I realized doing that, that um, this was this was it for me. I was, the wine industry was going to be it. Um, this was my career, but I had never been in the retail side of it, right? So I'd been on the restaurant side, I had been on the education side um, and I had been on the sales side. Um, Epic had moved me up to Napa, where I lived for unbelievably seven years. Mm-hmm. um doing the sales and again meetings sommeliers working with the french laundry working with meadow wood nice. you know these Angel, these amazing restaurants um but uh, my heart was always here in the desert and i think deep down i always knew i was going to come back and when the the time came um my my husband i had convinced him to leave napa and move down to 120 degree heat and for some reason he said yes he must like me a lot because he agreed and um You know, I was still a stay at home mom at that point. Um, We had two little boys, but I was restless. And an opportunity came up to take a part time job in this little hole in the wall wine shop in Palm Desert. I thought, eh, you know, eight hours a week, I'll just. I'll just go in. I'll, you know, get to chit chat with customers, have a little fun, make a little side money, go home to my, my babes. And I should have known better because it didn't, it, I don't even think it was one week before that eight hours turned into 20. And then I think by week three, I was putting in like a full 80 hours a week. And love, Yeah, totally. Excited, yeah. And, and the owner was kind of like, you know, I only have you budgeted for about eight hours <laughs> a week. <laughs> and and I said, Well, if if you could budget more I'd, I'd be willing to, to come on uh, full steam, yeah. and he was amenable and then um, later thereafter um, offered me a partnership. And so it made sense at the time, and um, I, you know I, I'd already poured my heart and soul into it, and so um, I thought it was a, a great opportunity and that's how I ended up now kind of being full steam there. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, Steve has some kind of degree or what, what do you have? Certificate? What, what do you got going? What, what do you ah. have?
2: Yeah. What do you, what do you got? Yeah. So I, I um, friends with Katie for a while. And I, I always say she's like the, the Yoda of, of the wine world, the wine. right? Well, Master Yoda. It like it. And <laughs> wow. um, she, you, you, you learn a lot from her from drinking with her. Mm. And, um, and she has some good bottles. But I, I've got a, a W set one, and there's a few other ones that I want to go for. Because um, I, I, I really love French wines, um, and and uh, touch on something that Katie was saying earlier. Um, you know, the Somme brought out a lot of wines. One thing I realized that once you start learning about wines, y- you find other wine people, <laughs> and they start opening their good bottles, right? And um, you know, I, I don't know how many people I've met. They're like, oh, you like wine, Steve? They, they just open up this, you know, I don't know, three, four, five hundred dollar bottle of wine, like it's nothing because. want to share that experience with you and and i think that's what the the wine world does is share a lot of experience and um and then also something i wanted to say that since katie touched on about the history that's where i got into wine because you you go back into history and like what you were saying rubio is wine is everywhere right it's mentioned in 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 wars and you know people go to war over it people go to war and protect it right like they they leave the wine vineyards alone It, it wasn't just um to drink, it was currency in some areas uh, where they couldn't afford to pay people in coins or anything else like that. So, that that's where my where my interest in wine really peaked was because you know we, we talk about history a lot, Ruby and I. Um, wine is mentioned often, and uh, and then when you start talking about oh, wine was discovered the great six thousand years ago, I just start thinking man, the humans that were around six thousand years ago. Um, whether they they made wine or a version of it or something, it's just, it's fascinating, right? The the wine world is fascinating. Um, And then Katie touched on like the Zin, this is the Zinfandel. One's from California, one's from from Italy. And they taste like totally different wines. They do, Um, they do taste different. And and, uh, that goes with why I'm such a huge fan of old world wines because, and correct me if I'm wrong. Their laws don't allow them to change a lot of different ways of how they make the wines, right? right? Whereas in the U.S., the grape is the grape, and however you make it, you make it. And if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's still in, right? And so, so I okay. I I've got something. <clears throat> uh, number
0: one, you mentioned that sometimes it became uh, wine became payment, and in Freemasonry, as I mentioned before, that's one of the uh, wages. And like I said, one. Of the wages for one of the masons and one of the degrees right and and at our lodge i don't know about uh, you brethren uh, listening uh it, it we do make use of it you know we uh, we pair it up with the steaks that we that we make there whether it's um filet mignon or prime rib or uh, the the other new york steak we, we try to pair it up but we try to bring some kind because it does bring out the flavor i mean it just the flavor just explodes in your mouth for those of you wondering, though, because maybe you, you've heard us speak of uh, Catholic Church, the Bible, how many times is wine mentioned in, uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I believe I found here that it says that it is mentioned in the Old Testament that wine, the Hebrew word for wine or yayin, appears 140 times in the Old Testament while tier, or tirash, representing the new wine, can be found in 38 instances. The New Testament uses the Greek word for wine, uh, oinos, 33 times, while wineskins or oscos appears in a dozen instances. That's a lot of times. They are talking about wine a whole lot. Are you Catholic? Is that a Irish Catholic? So, you know, okay you know all about that. Now, did, were you aware that it appears that many times? All right, go ahead. <laughs>
1: so, I, okay. Yes, I drink for a living, but I am not a heathen. <laughs> um, I, so, and, and it's interesting, I, I still go to church every Sunday, and um, I'm always fascinated by the references to, to wine and the symbolism um, that wine represents in so many different facets of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I'm I'm in love with the idea from the New Testament um, about the the blood of Christ, um, and like we touched on how this was part of the New Covenant, how this was the idea that this blood would be spilled um, for our forgiveness, and so that the old ways of um, needing to sacrifice um, and spill blood into the streets every year um was was no longer was no longer necessary um and so the idea in the old or in the new testament that i love is when it's you know drink this in memory of me and every time you raise a glass you know to have a moment where you remember you know maybe not if even if you're not religious, but not maybe Jesus, but the toiling that goes into this, the labor that goes into this, the hours and the sacrifice um, that wine um, that making wine creates. And like anything that somebody grows with their hands, that someone labors over, something that takes mm-hmm. months yeah. and months to cultivate, to nurture, to harvest, and then to turn into something that it never dreamed it could be, that's a, a beautiful thing. And I, I really appreciate that idea about wine that all goes back to kind of those biblical references of taking a moment, being thankful for this, but remembering what it originally was was meant to be.
0: And being a Catholic as well, I believe Steve is Catholic as well. We, we very rarely give it the time necessary to think about it, like what you just said, and, and having a college education, going through all the steps that you just talked about, uh, you shared with us, as far as your education and how you fell in love with this. And obviously, you have a a, a very a, a firm grasp of the actual historical going back 6,000, possibly 9,000 years, that man has had not only uh, access to grapes, but somehow figured out how to make wine i mean where where did that where did that come from right but in in the old testament our first I, I believe our first instance that we hear about that is when noah after the flood one of the first thing that he does is plant the grape the grape a lot of people don't know that even uh, people that have been studying the bible for years or, or hardcore catholics or christians when you throw that at them they're like what like what and then you point it out to them in genesis and then what happens after that right they the one of the sons finds them uh nude <laughs> and uh he gets mad but anyhow it was the it was the the vine that 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 was the very first thing after the flood after the waters receded it was it was the vine that was planted and then when it was time when uh he he was time to harvest the, the grape he made wine and he drank from it and so that he can celebrate the the new earth right everything is growing again we've been uh forgiven for our sins and it, it's just incredible that this thing, that's just Old Testament, because now if you talk about Turkey, where you're talking about, and they have their own religious beliefs, you even have Greece with the Bac- Bacchus and, you know, the uh, the grapevine and, and their ceremonies and their orgies. Did you study about Bacchus and, and Greece and, and and Rome? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I mean, not... Not in a scholarly fashion, other than you know, multiple deities existed in Greece and Italy, and in with Greece, Bacchus and Dionysus. You have, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you you. It was so hugely mm-hmm. important to their their culture and their religious ceremonies, um, it, in 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 um, Italy. I can't remember who the god of wine was in it in Italy. Now it's it'll come to me. Um, but in in it any in Bacchus, the, the I think Romans, the I think Romans Bacchus was yeah, no. I think it Greece was, was. Yeah, I think uh, Greece was Dionysus. But in any event, you know, to have to have something like this be so important um, that they dedicated a god to it. That it, you know, I mean, that that speaks volumes. I think there. And you know, the Greeks um, are really responsible for the the cultivation of vines all over Europe. Um, you know, it's it's widely thought that because of you know, the Greeks um, and their disbursement that these vines ended up in, in so many other places in Europe. So we can think about Turkey um, and uh, Caucasus as being maybe the cradle of civilization in a biblical sense, perhaps. Um, but really, when it came to viticulture and agriculture, Greece is the, the mothership, if you will, of winemaking. And it was the Greeks who taught the romans and the etruscans how to make wine Um, it was the greeks who brought the vines to uh rome um, without them who who knows what we would be drinking (laughs) right now but you know you you look at um where everything had began and it had to start somewhere and what we do know is it started with the greeks
0: can you mentioned a little bit earlier about the different the different uh grapes that are grown here in california What about the Coachella Valley? What kind of grapes are we growing here? And what kind of wines are they making from that? Are they making any kind of wines from that?
1: No, but you know what? That's really interesting. So there's there's two um, species of grapes. There's Vitis lambrusca and Vitis vinifera. Vitis vinifera is what we know as the wine making grapes. Vitis lambrusca is what we know as like the table grapes. So if you drive out Thermal Mecca, um, you'll see. I think they're called Riviera vineyards, um, and those are table grapes like Thompson seedless, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we grow a lot of them. The problem with making wine is um, it it can be a little finicky, and grapes for Vitis vinifera like to grow um, in areas where there's a big diurnal swing in temperature. It's part of the reason why Temecula, has has a difficult time. You know, you need warm days for the fruit to ripen and then you need cold or very cool nights for everything to kind of shut down um, because the ripening has to happen slowly over a long period of time, right? You can't have uh, grapes that are constantly ripening, ripening, ripening and next thing you know, it's two weeks later and oh, (laughs) we got to pull the grapes. I mean, this this is something that does take time. And so the climate um, factors largely into it as does soil. Um, You know, I, I mentioned about the Italian and planting in sandy soil, um, you know, vines and grapes, uh, for wine typically will do well where nothing else will grow. Um, however, there are certain elements that need to be present in the soil in order for those things to flourish. And I'm certainly not an enologist or a chemist to, to go into that, but what I will say is the Coachella Valley really is not going to, to be successful making wine or grapes for wine. However, uh, if you go out to Rancho Cucamonga, if you go up to Anza, um, mm. if you go out into um, you know, Ontario, you can find old abandoned vineyards that are Vitus vinifera, and they are mission grapes. And the, they are mission grapes that would have been planted by um Spanish monks. They are grapes that would have been planted by Mexican immigrants because uh the mission grape is prevalent down like the Valle de Guadalupe, where they call it Liston or Liston Pietro. Um these 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 are grapes that made their way here to Southern California. You look at, um, I believe Stella Rosso, um, they have a winery in Los Angeles. Um, I actually have another friend with a winery in Los Angeles, not that they're growing the grapes there, but at one point Southern California had. a a wine culture. We had a a, a grape growing culture. And over the years, commerce won and beat out the, you know, and the cost of the land was worth more to actually have, you know, a commercial business than a vineyard. But that's not to say that if you go out exploring, you won't find an old gnarly overgrown uh, mission vineyard, um, you know, that you'd need a machete to go hack your way through which is a lot of fun. I've done it, by the way. <laughs> um, don't mess with the machete wielding sommelier over here. Um, but it's but it's a fascinating part of our history as well, you know. And just to to talk um, briefly uh, to wrap up the Zinfandel portion of this, I just want to say, you know, there was a a period of time, you know, we talk about the significance of old vines and now how we tout how important that is in the nineteen seventies. Um, red blends were falling out of fashion. Red wine was falling out of fashion with uh, American consumers in favor of sweeter wines um, and, and even imports. Think about Blue Nun, Matus, yeah. Lancers, right? Like we were drinking some of the sweeter cheap stuff. I still remember some of those. I, I, as do yeah. I. I mean, I think Boone's Farm and that <laughs> came shortly thereafter, maybe a little Bartles and James. Yeah. But, um, you know, Bartles we, but there was something very significant that happened in the 1970s um, with with a man named Bob Trincaro, and Bob was the winemaker at a winery that we probably have all heard of called Sutter Home. And he had Zinfandel that he was fermenting, and for whatever reason, the process wasn't working well. And it's it what happened was what we call a stuck fermentation. So it got to a certain point where you know in fermentation, the yeast gobbles up the sugar and then converts that into alcohol. Um, And so the more sugar present in a grape at the time of fermentation, the higher the alcohol it will be. Um, But sometimes, you know, as when we're even making bread if the conditions aren't right, the yeast doesn't activate and things just get stuck and they stop. So for whatever reason, Bob had this Zinfandel. It was stuck and and it wasn't going anywhere. And instead of tinkering with it any further, he said, well, let's just drain it off and bottle it. And it was um, a pale pink color and it was slightly sweet. And he thought, well, let's just call it white Zinfandel. And, what? yeah, and given that red wine was falling out of fashion, um, there were a lot of, uh, threats that these vineyards were going to be ripped out and planted to varietals that were more, you know, making more money, a bigger cash cow because of this accident of white Zinfandel where, you know, this pale pink, slightly sweet juice, um, became all the rage. I mean, stop. You guys remember, I mean, white Zinfandel, there might've been even two or three on every wine list by the glass. It is legitimately what saved Zinfandel from, you know, pre-civil war from 160 years ago from being ripped out. Um, and so as much as we like to poo-poo white Zinfandel as being, you know, tacky and declassé, um, we really credit our wine history of Zinfandel too white Zin for saving these vineyards. And by the time Zinfandel came back into fashion, you know, we still had all these remarkably historical vineyards um, to show for it, right? And so, you know, that part of the historical element of Zinfandel, I think is is really astounding as well. Um, just a, a happy accident that saved part of our history, you know? Wow. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think I saw some of that, but now I know even more. Uh, uh, there was like a Netflix special on on that guy that brought the, mm-hmm. and it, so he started this whole culture. What I want to ask now is something about, um, you know, you know, in Freemasonry, there's a strong astronomical element. Everybody likes to focus on the letter G and geometry, but there's astronomy all over the place. And that tells us, to, to me, It tells us to really focus on the four seasons of the year and when you're talking about agriculture and wine and and making beer you have to pay attention what time of the year you are in have you become more aware of that since you started studying all this and becoming basically a wine expert
1: I think it pertains more to the, the viticulturalists and the grape growers and the vineyard managers. And there is um, a, a movement afoot um, that is nothing new, but it's called biodynamics. And it's a, it's a farming technique and practice that dates back. I mean, I don't quote me on this, but I, I, it dates back a long time. And it's based on um, how to tend to your vineyard based on the lunar calendar. And the idea is there are days to water, there are fruit days, there are harvest days, and there's days you let everything just rest and be. And based on what um, where the the lunar cycle is dictates how you tend to your vineyard. And so, you know, a lot of, um, uh, kind of, we'll say the old guard, uh, winemakers look at this as a little bit of woo woo winemaking, a little woo woo science. And then they don't take uh, it. They don't take a lot of it seriously, but studies have been done over and over where they will pit a biodynamically farmed and, and crafted wine against a wine that is from the same area, same grapes not um, farmed biodynamically. And for whatever reason, there is a significant <laughs> difference between these two wines and how they taste. Um, you know, the the process really um, was, I think, um, perfected in France, in Burgundy. And there's a lot more to it than that. You know, you take a cow horn, you fill it with manure, you bury it somewhere in the vineyard, you know, you spray everything with a copper solution, you know, you get out a drum and you beat it. No, I'm, that's, that's not true. But, okay. but I mean, we're, we're, we're just one step shy of that. Right. You. I know, I know, I, I know, I know. Yes. You put on your cloak and you chant. No, but, I, but, but honestly, there, there is that, that image of kind of that very, um, you know, we'll call it a holistic approach okay. to making wine. And it works. And and I think part of why people have a hard time wrapping their head around it is because you, you can't pinpoint why it works, right? You don't know why, but maybe you just have to believe it. And just like everything we're talking about spiritually and religiously, you know, I mean it all comes down to sometimes you just have to accept that it works. And for whatever reason it is better. And if and the people who choose to to practice farming this way, um, they are going above and beyond, um you know, with their intentions, with their land and with their fruit. And if if nothing else, maybe that's the secret. Is you know, it, it requires that much more attention and and observation.
0: You better watch out. They're gonna, you know, the 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 witches. What was that? The, the whole witch trials and all that. But the Salem witch trials. Um, but what she's talking about is something that I've been uh, also, and and many of my. Uh, uh, fellow masons that i talked to have have been trying to make a, a distinction with and that is the difference between real astronomy and astrology so she was she was she was uh trying to make the distinction between the two and even my grandfather my grandfather owns a salt mine and the he had he had to pay attention to the lunar cycles because of tides right so at my house i have this giant 90 pound sack of salt it's, it's sea salt and when i sit down with my i sat down with my grandfather one time and i asked him uh, about you know with the process and all that i was shocked when i just playfully i asked him about the lunar cycles and he, he said no you gotta know what the lunar cycle is what because if, if you get caught you're gonna get you're gonna drown you have to know so I, that's what i understood from what you're telling me about that it's not so much hocus pocus no these guys are like more in tune with our natural seasons or the natural cycles of time, which is, I think right now we're all out of sync with all all of that, right? That's, that's why we're seeing all of this happen right now, whether it's, it's the pandemic, whether it's the politics, we're all out of connection. We're out of sync with, with just the basic cycles of what we're talking about and what makes a great wine. If you don't pay attention, what's going to happen? You're not going to make a great wine. And by the way, the two bottles that you brought are awesome, (laughs) And we've been sipping little by little. I know you guys can't see, but what what a great pairing of wines that we have here. And so we've been at it now for about 45 minutes. And what I want to do now is close this up by asking everybody here uh, what they're grateful for uh, on this day and then wrap it up after that. So I'm going to start with uh, Ted Parker. I want to ask you what you're grateful for uh, today, I, I already know what I'm grateful for, and 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 Katie is is hugely responsible for that. But Ted, what are you what are you grateful for? Let's take this around the the horn and let's talk about it.
3: Thank you, Caesar. Um, thank you, Katie, for being here, and Brother Steve. I am I'm thankful that I am a Mason. I'm thankful that I'm I'm here right now in the present where we live. As much as I can complain about it. I can't. I'm a contractor. Thank you. Uh, I I build houses and I do construction. I we have more work than what we can shake a stick at right now. So I am grateful for where I am and what is going on, even in all the bad things that are happening or the outlandish things, whatever you want to call it. I'm grateful to be right here right now at this time. And thank you for having me here, Caesar. And thank you for giving me an education. Uh, wow! By the way, yeah, um, we have more to talk about when we're done. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So again, thank you. That's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for to be here right now with you guys. Katie, where are you, what are you grateful for today?
1: Well, yeah, I'm I'm grateful that I was allowed into the the men's layer and that <laughs> I'm 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 somewhere where I think few have have ever traveled before. Um, <laughs> I, it, honestly, being able—I'm thankful for. <laughs> <You're shade. laughs> um, I'm I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my passion. I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about wine because i love it and i think you know if you didn't know that uh, by now uh, you haven't been listening but um honestly this is this is my love and to have people um to talk to uh, about it and ask thoughtful questions and be a part of my wine journey um that's what i'm thankful for and i i love this valley um i love the the wine friends that i've made um, you all make you all make this desert a better place and i'm really thankful to know you all and call you friends. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, obviously grateful for my family and friends, grateful for wine, but I'm Katie and I actually have a group of friends. We call ourselves society of fermented friends and uh, we get together and do wine tastings. And, um, besides being a, a wine sensei, Katie's also an amazing cook. She is like a master chef. She needs to have her own restaurant. I, I got to throw that out there. But, um, um, you know, I am grateful for this experience, that this podcast that we just did today. Um, it, you know, one of the great things about wine is it, it allows you to travel to other countries um, via a bottle. And it allows you to travel in time because, as Katie was mentioning, these vines go back, you know, centuries and, uh, and according to the Bible, Adam and Eve in those days, right? To an extent, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm grateful for this opportunity and I'm grateful that my shoulder, my peck is better. If you heard, I was working out with Caesar. Yeah, that's right. And that's right. I uh, I like your analogy on your podcast you did, I think afterwards, where I was an insert apprentice trying to be a master mason without going through the steps. Yeah. And, and I'm saying that as far as my lifting, I, uh, I, I I try to go more than what I was capable of and able to do at the time. And but now I'm better. And so, but uh, thank you, Caesar.
0: <laughs> I am grateful for Katie being here and educate. I mean that wow. Uh, I, I and you know what your your passion does show. And maybe that's that should be a uh, a battle cry to all of us, right? If we were all so passionate. Our country wouldn't be in the situation it's in. Our government wouldn't be in the situation that it's in. Our own lives wouldn't be in the situation that they are in. And so, and for me, that's like a, you're throwing down the gauntlet at me, and I'm gonna have to pick up my game here and be because yeah, yeah, I, I like Freemasonry, I like history, I like uh, ancient civilizations, I like learning about wine, I like exercise, but I am not. Uh, conveying the passion that you are that is without a doubt today it showed um i was you know glued on every word that you were saying uh, not only because I, I like mine but it, it because it, it connects us to the past like you're saying steve it, it it connects us to uh, who we are and and when when we drink this now we understand why they would drink this in the bible it says that Hey, if you're melancholy or if you have a sour stomach or things like that, if you have ailments, drink. And it, it gives you prescriptions of how much wine you should drink. They knew, they understood this, but more than anything, they understood that it, it gladdens the heart, right? And that's how my heart feels right now, talking to you, Katie, have, being in the presence here of, of everybody. My heart has been gladdened by you. You are definitely a shining light. Continue what you're doing. I am glad that you actually accepted the invitation. You came here. And not only that, but school is in session, everybody. (laughs) And uh, class is in session, and we have been schooled. Uh, So, to all of you who are listening and who will listen, this is Cesar Rubio. This has been another strenuous exercise strengthening your body mind and soul and i hope your soul and heart has been gladdened by what you have learned here by katie finn thank you thank you all